Hi, my name is Sandy Puckett, and I'm a hemophilia nurse educator for BioRx. I'm also a school nurse and have um, served as a hemophilia nurse coordinator in the past at a hemophilia treatment center. And today I would like to invite the school nurses in the community to learn more about how to navigate bleeding disorders in the school setting. Today's objectives will include knowledge of a hereditary bleeding disorder and how to establish a safe plan of care for the school setting and supporting the staff within the school so they know how to deal with bleeding issues and diminish their fears and concerns and to review how the American with Disabilities Act relate to children with public in public schools. The most common types of bleeding disorders are von Willebrand disease, hemophilia A, and hemophilia B. What does bleeding mean? Well, we want to review hemophilia and von Willebrand disease. They are hereditary bleeding disorders characterized by the blood's inability to clot normally. And a blood clot is a series of factor proteins in the blood that work together in combination and convert the blood from a liquid state to a solid state. So there are 13 primary proteins in the clotting cascade and we sort of sprinkle it with different things to create a good solid clot. So when there's a tear in a vessel in the body, that is called a bleed. And what happens is the tissue that is torn has an automatic response of vasoconstriction and then the platelets are triggered to go to that area. They float in kind of like plates and then they stick together and complete a plug around that site of injury. Then with the series of those 13 clotting proteins, a fiber mesh is formed and from that is a plug that then turns into a solid clot. And so hemostasis is the stopping of bleeding through that clot formation. The first bleeding disorder I would like to address is von Willebrand disease, and it affects 1-3% to of the general population, both men and women equally. There are three subtypes. Type 1, which is the most common, affects about 80% of those affected with von Willebrand disease, have very mild bleeding issues for the most part. Then there are type 2, and type 2 has numerous subtypes, and they're quite rare and unusual and somewhat challenging to identify. Um, and so I won't go into those in any great detail, just know that they are out there and they can be diagnosed. And type 3. Type 3 serves as sort of a severe type and it demonstrates much like severe hemophilia. So both a mom and a dad have to have type 1 in order to have a child with type 3, which makes absolutely no von Willebrand protein. Von Willebrand factor has three primary roles. It binds and transports the factor VIII, which is an essential factor protein in the clotting cascade to create a stable clot. It also creates platelet aggregation and platelet adhesion. Bleeding with von Willebrand disease, I want to review this because in the health room, nurses can frequently see those chronic nosebleeds or girls who come in with really heavy periods. And I want to touch on this because um, it's not unusual that some of those kids who have unprovoked nosebleeds, they could potentially have a bleeding disorder, most likely von Willebrand disease, if they have a family history and other bleeding um, issues. So if they have easy bruising, any other bleeding issues, chronic nosebleeds that are unprovoked, 
Um, if a girl has heavy, heavy periods, heavy menorrhagia, easy bruising, maybe bleeding with dental work, and frequently as a school nurse, I'll call the family and have a brief discussion and do a brief family history about that. And we can discuss that more later. But menorrhagia is defined as uh, someone who has a period for seven to 10 days. They may go through tampons and pads frequently. Um, and they have, might have really heavy cramping and clots. And certainly girls who are going through puberty have those issues, but it's when it's prolonged that it's a problem. Hemophilia A, also known as factor eight deficiency or classic hemophilia, is the most common type of hemophilia. It affects 80 to 85%-ish of the um, hemophilia population. There are three levels of severity, severe, less than 1%, their body makes no factor protein, moderate, 2 to 5%, where their body just makes a sprinkle of factor protein, and um, mild, which is about 6 to 50%. Normal circulating clotting protein is about 50 to 150%. The milds can have a variety of bleeding issues, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Hemophilia B, also known as Christmas disease, is factor IX deficiency. It affects about 15% of those who are diagnosed with hemophilia. The severity is the same, less than 1% for severe, 2 to 5% for moderate, and 5 or 6 to 50% for mild. So when we talk about the severity, the less than 1%, which affects about 70% of those with hemophilia, um, they have spontaneous bleeding and bleeding issues that they don't know how it transpired. So they might just have an ankle that feels funny and then it actually has sustained a bleed, but they don't know why. The moderate, one to 5%, is those who just have a sprinkle and it's interesting because they tend to bleed exponentially less than someone with severe, those who make none. So they frequently know what caused the bleeding episode, I twisted my ankle, I tripped, or um, I bumped into something, or they might have some kind of mild event that caused their bleeding episode. Then the milds, who are 60 to 50%, can tend to be real problematic because it's not unusual that they forget that they have hemophilia or they dismiss their pain as something other than hemophilia or a bleeding-related issue because they don't have bleeds very frequently. And so sometimes they can be real challenges because by the time they go to their healthcare practitioner or the hemophilia treatment center, the bleed has been going on for quite some time and they have some serious issues regarding their bleeding. The most common sites of bleeding in people with hemophilia are the joints, muscles, hematomas or bruising, and mucosal bleeding. The joints and muscles really are the most significant places that we see um, the bleeding issues. Joints that are affected primarily are the elbows, knees, and ankles. However, any joint of the body can be affected with a bleeding issue. So um, with prolonged bleeding in the joints or numerous uh, joint bleeds, they can certainly have permanent effects from that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Muscle bleeds can be problematic because they can hold a lot of blood. And if a 
um, with the striated muscles of um, muscle fibers in the muscle, that blood can sort of sneak around in there and cause compartment syndrome if there's nerve entrapment. And so it's really important to identify a muscle bleed and treat that early as well. Hematomas or bruising can look awful. They aren't particularly dangerous. However, they can be quite painful. And mucosal bleeds happen um, because the clots break down very quickly in mucosal areas. Life-threatening bleeds are the head, the abdomen, and the neck and throat. So head bleeds, if they sustain someone with hemophilia, particularly severe, sustains a head injury, it can take up to three days because remember, they don't bleed faster, they just bleed longer and it's a slow ooze. It can take up to three days to really start showing significant symptoms from a head injury. It's important that the interventions with a head injury happen early and soon and that appropriate treatment is given for someone who has sustained a head injury. And certainly looking for um, the uh, classic signs of a head injury with nausea, vomiting, severe headache, blurred vision, lethargy, that sort of thing is real important to be mindful of. But if a child is on the playground and they fall off of a piece of playground equipment and hit their head, it's important that intervention be done right away. The neck can be problematic because we know that the trachea is small and any kind of constriction around the trachea can be life-threatening. And in the school setting, we might see that when kids tussle and play and they might have a chokehold or be in some kind of play situation or even schoolyard fights where they have um, some kind of sustained injury to the neck. Or if they've had dental work and didn't receive appropriate treatment with hemophilia products prior to that, the um, injections with dental work for any kind of um, blocks can cause uh, bleeding down into the throat and neck and the muscles around that. So it's important that that be a consideration as well if someone comes in with hemophilia and says they have a difficult time breathing and they feel like there's a tickling around their throat. The abdomen, big blows to the abdomen are a problem because the abdomen can hold a lot of blood and a big injury can be sustained with abdominal injuries. That's why heavy contact sports are not recommended like football, hockey, or collegiate wrestling. And certainly um, learning or discussing with the hemophilia center or a healthcare provider which sports are appropriate is very important. What are the treatments? Certainly rice buys a lot of time, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And early access to factor concentrate is paramount. So we really recommend that they have some emergency medicine there, that the child be allowed to self-infuse if possible, and certainly having the emergency contacts available at all times and updated so you can notify the parents or guardians that there has been an issue and the child needs a tr uh, treatment right away. Mechanical support is frequently seen in the school setting too, where they might have crutches or slings, wraps, wheelchairs, and pain management is something that might be underappreciated because having bleeding episodes is quite painful and having pain medication in the school setting is quite important for them to concentrate and be able to attend school. The kinds of factor replacement are specific concentrate for the specific disorder. So it's factor eight is only for factor eight deficient patients. Factor nine only for factor nine deficient patient, patients. It's calculated by units of factor 
per kilogram of weight. And any dosing that might be given in the school, the factors should be labeled with a prescription label and a dosing, and your treatment plan should reflect what that dosing would be by the doctor's prescription. There are two types of treatment, prophylaxis and on-demand. Prophylaxis is very commonly seen, and that is given on a regular basis for factor eight. It can be every other day, three times a week, two times a week, even once a week, depending on what the order is, and that's to prevent the bleeding. And the goal with prophylaxis generally is when they're at their trough level, they're greater than 1%, because remember, those with moderate, anything over 1%, tend to bleed a lot less than someone who has absolutely no circulating factor. On-demand treatment is a choice the family may make where they bleed when they sustain an injury or have a bleeding episode. Those are the two primary ways that people are treated. Safety and treatment in the school, it's really important that there be an emergency plan established for the child when the child attends school. It's best if this is done at the inception of the school year and it can be done in tandem with the treatment center or with the home care company to help navigate the treatment plan. Having current orders from the healthcare provider is very important, so if there is an emergency and a child is taken to an emergency care facility, that they have an emergency plan to accompany them there along with the factor concentrate because most emergency departments and hospitals don't carry the factor necessary to treat the bleeding episodes. Certainly in that emergency response, it's important to know how to respond and what to do in that event. And educating the staff is very important so they know how to navigate those situations. An update on the contact information is very important. As you know, a lot of families move to different places and their cell phones are turned on, turned off, their home phones have changed. So finding updated information and having that available for the school and for the school nurse is very important. A medical alert on the child is really important as well because not everybody may know or be able to identify the child with a bleeding disorder. So having that medical alert on that child really helps the emergency response people and the school to identify that this child, yes, does indeed have a serious bleeding issue and it helps the emergency room know how to access that information as well. We have in our uh, educational binder, a first aid trifold that really helps the school staff and the school nurse know how to respond to different bleeding events. School activities. You know, it's really the goal for a child with a bleeding disorder to lead a normal, healthy life if possible. And having physical education for all children is very important. So we want children with bleeding disorders to participate in PE as well. Certainly discuss that with the healthcare provider or the hemophilia treatment center to decide and determine what's appropriate for that particular child if they have any kind of physical limitations. Field trips are important for all children in the school and certainly kids with bleeding disorders are entitled to attend field trips as well, but planning is very important having the medication and again the emergency plan with them and that the child be allowed to self-infuse on a field trip if that's appropriate. So it's really good to have the contact information and have sort of that ready-to-go information for the field trip. The school bus, it's important that the school bus driver know who on the bus might have a bleeding disorder and again the medical identification is very important for that as well. 
before and after school activities. There isn't always a school nurse available for before and after school activities. However, the coaches or whoever is sponsoring the activity should be aware that this child has a bleeding disorder and what to do in the event of an, a bleeding episode. There are federal laws in place to help these children and help the schools know how to navigate such situations when they have a child. So the Section 504 plan was drawn from the Rehabilitation Act and that really serves as a tool to remind staff members and the family what accommodations and modifications would be useful and need to be met in order for the child to remain in school and have access to the same free and appropriate public education any other child has. So it's very important to have one of those in place if that's necessary. For example, if a child has a broken leg or a bleed in a leg and is on crutches, that they're not um, tardy or penalized for being tardy because it takes them a while to get to class. IEPs are individual education plans and that might be appropriate for a child with a cognitive issue. Perhaps that child had a bleeding, um, bleeding episode in the head or had some kind of cognitive impairment and they might be under the other health impaired, but accommodations need to be made or some kind of educational provision made for that child as well. It's not unusual for the school nurse to participate in meetings when IEPs or Section 504 plans are crafted, and certainly we have resources available to help you navigate that as well. So how does the nursing process uh, work or unfold for a child with a bleeding disorder in the school? Certainly the diagnosis, identifying what the diagnosis is, and what are the potential complications with that. So a po potential complication related to bleeding disorder is a, an appropriate diagnosis. What are the interventions? So there are a variety of interventions that can be done for children with bleeding disorders. We've discussed that briefly. Certainly the first aid and immediate response, when to call 911, when to have access to the medication or infuse the medication, and pain management. Confidentiality is paramount. We really adhere to HIPAA because this is a medical issue. And so no medical, you know, all medical information is confidential. And it's certainly to the parent's discretion how or how much they would like that information uh, to be shared with the school staff. It's not unusual that all staff in servicing or education be done and the parents are present at that time. Um, and it's important that the parents give permission for that information to be shared. Hemophilia and von Willebrand disease in the school setting is certainly something that can be accommodated. And we at BioRx have a very comprehensive educational program for the school staff and to help the school nurse to navigate this disorder or any issues surrounding bleeding disorders. We have an comprehensive educational binder that has some information regarding the 504 plan, a safety care plan that is in collaboration with the healthcare provider and or the hemophilia treatment center. We can help develop that emergency plan, a daily care plan, first aid resources for the school because again, the school nurse is not always available. School nurse consultation, we have nurses available, myself included, for the school nurse to consult with, with questions regarding how to deal with 
bleeding disorders in the school setting. We also have scientific resources available for any students that might want to do scientific projects or displays regarding bleeding disorders. And student advocacy, you know, really working with the students so they can self-advocate if they need to. Here are some of the contact information for school nurses that might want to follow up with these people. We have Maya, Jamie, and myself, and a couple of excellent websites as resources for you to draw from for any kind of questions or concerns you might have in the school setting. So we really want to work collaboratively with the community and school nurses to help all students have a safe and healthy experience in the schools. Thank you.